Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Uh, Substance abuse holds a great significance in the world we live in today. The definition of the phrase that we found at least is an ongoing pattern of substance use that causes problems or distress. So on today's episode, we'll be looking a little deeper into the understanding of substance use, the point of view of both the individual and family involved, as well as some practices you can adapt to support family members that are struggling. To help answer some questions and guide us to understanding more about the topic is professional counselor Joining me from Atlanta, Georgia, Stephen Band. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for um, spending a few hours of your time on a Sunday evening and just joining me on the show to be able to talk about this. My pleasure. Now, as I just mentioned, you're a licensed counselor, so you go both individuals, families, couples, as well as group therapy as well but you specialize in areas of addiction, anxiety, and sort of trauma-related situations. Could you tell me more about that specialty? Okay, well, a little history about me. So on May 23rd this year, I'll be celebrating 20 years of personal sobriety from drug addiction. Mm -hmm. And so it was... After I had one year of continuous sobriety that I did some research into how I wanted to reinvent myself. And I decided to go back and get my master's degree in counseling. And of course, with being newly sober, that was a new passion in my life. However, prior to that, I had other passions like working in the area of grief and loss and working in the area of anxiety, stress, and depression. And so dealing with anxiety, stress, and depression, you know, ties into people that have had different levels of trauma and different levels of grief and loss and substance abuse encumbers all of that. We'll get more into that as, as we go. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's amazing. 20 years is such a big achievement, especially knowing the struggle that it sort of comes with and the whole lifestyle change, I think is a big, is a big thing. Um, so other than the substance, like what kind of situations do you normally sort of deal with on a sort of day to day basis? Pretty much anything, I, I, I never know what I'm going to be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So 
when I am either engaging with people um, over the phone, virtually in, in my private practice, or um, I also, I have a private practice and I also have a, a full-time career working for one of the large um, insurance companies here in the US. Uh, I work as a behavioral health advocate, so I support individuals and families and um, making sure that they have the resources that they need, but I never know what they're gonna need until I engage with them. So I've learned to be very in the moment, very flexible. And even in my individual sessions with people, whether it's couples or, or individuals, I sort of always ask the question, how can I support you today? Because mm -hmm. I don't know what they need at that moment. Even if I think I know where we're going to go from where we might have left off at the previous session, I don't know if that's going to be relevant for them at that moment because I sort of want to know what's relevant for them. Mm -hmm. That's such a very, it's a very different question to ask um, other than sort of saying, how are you? It's like, it's a lot more, it sounds a lot more supportive than just asking how are you or how are you feeling? So right. it's amazing that that sort of questions like how can I support you rather than just jumping into the emotional part of it. Well, I actually do at the very, very beginning when I see them, I ask, you know, how are you doing? How was your week? And just have a little brief you know, breaking the ice, kind of whatever they might want to share. And then I asked that other question, how could I support you today? And even throughout the session, if it feels like maybe we're complete with that particular issue, I'll ask, so what else can I support you with at this time? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, those are amazing three questions to sort of ask an individual, especially when that's not a lot of it's not a lot of situations where you're asked that. So mm -hmm. having the being asked that I think is is pretty amazing and having that sort of connection with an individual as well. I agree. So before we get started in today's topic, we really love to start off with a little icebreaker to get to know you a little bit more personally. So um, when I say these first few phrases, just sort of come in the first thing that pops into your head and the first name of a book or a movie that can pop in. Okay. Okay. So the first one is your favorite book. Well, I can't really say a favorite book, but I would say any book by Brene Brown. She is the expert in the area of shame, vulnerability, and working through perfectionism and being your most authentic self. Yeah. So any any book that you can find on her anywhere, because I know I'm talking to you in Australia. I'm in the United States. I don't know if you have Amazon that has any book under the sun available, but whatever equivalent you might have, look her up if you're interested in that level of personal growth. I definitely have had a lot of guests come onto the show and say the first saying the same Brene Brown as their favorite author. 
and it's gotten me to add a few of her books to my list now. So my list is just getting longer and longer by the second. So yeah, good, I, good. it's filled with hers. So I think it's definitely, I'm getting ready to be able to buy the whole set of her books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can get them on audio or, or, or book form. <laughs> Yes, I, I read hardcover, so I I love actually reading a book. So it's it's very okay. different experience. Uh huh. How about your favorite movie? So I am a big movie buff of all kinds, and I have to say, I'm not going to give you one title, but I'm going to say any movie that can make me feel some deep level of emotion and really touch me to the core is a fantastic movie. Now that could be laughter, could be drama, could bring me tears to my eyes, but uh, I'm not really into the horror genre and I'm not really into the sci-fi drama, but there are some in those categories that I've enjoyed over the years, but not necessarily my go-to. So I, I guess you can say I'm like very much into, uh, I like to be touched deeply, tug on my heartstrings. No, I'm exactly the same. I don't like watching movies that are just completely, unless I'm not really needing to think about it. I think I love to just sit down and watch a huge, something that will get you to feel a huge deep, part of emotion, whether it's crying and I'm exactly the same. So it's really difficult for me to um, relate. I love movies that I can relate to right. and situations that I can sort of see myself in. So yes. I definitely agree with you there. My least favorite movies are the ones that seem overly contrived. Like it has to make logical sense that you get from point A to point B to point C. And it can't just seem like, well, they just made up a bunch of stuff that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm exactly the same. It has to, I look into every detail as well, which really doesn't help. So when there's like little errors in something in it, I point it out furiously. And mm -hmm. my family absolutely hate watching a movie with me. So it's, <laughs> it's like that. I feel you. <laughs> So how about your favorite podcast? Well, I'm going to have to go back to my original answer. Brene Brown has the most incredible podcast on Spotify. I don't know if you have Spotify in your part of the world. Yeah. But yeah, she you can look her up on Spotify and she's got tons of YouTube videos as well. So mm -hmm. she's my go-to and I... I actually share them with a lot of my clients that, you know, need to get educated in the areas that she specializes in because my, I want people to feel safe to be vulnerable. I want people to be able to let go of hardcore shame that they're holding on to. And I want them to learn how to be more and more their authentic self. And she is the master in that area. I think um, 
I think this will help answer the next question as to who your famous role model would be then. In this part of my life, definitely Brene Brown, but I mean, I have other role models. Um, I, I've been super inspired by Oprah Winfrey. Um, she has, she used to have a series on TV called Super Soul Sunday, and she <laughs> would interview different spiritual people from all different genres. And that was, she's been a big uh, impact on my life as well. She's, she's someone that I've known pretty much my whole, my whole life. And she's such a, even when she did the Oprah Winfrey show and it was like, she's impacted so many people and she's impacted my understanding of a lot of situations as well. So I can definitely agree with you on, on both Brene Brown and Oprah Winfrey for sure. And she also is the one that sort of made Brene Brown more well-known through her numerous interviews with Brene. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really cool um, duo. If they ever sort of get a chance to work together again, that would be an incredible thing to watch. I agree. <laughs> so lastly, how about your favorite course that you've completed? I would say, um, well, it's no longer of, around under the name that I'm going to mention, but it is under a different name, very similar. So back when I was 18 years old, I took a course um, called EST, E-S-T, and it was created by a man named Werner Erhard. So it, EST stood for Earhart Seminar Training. And it really was a, about, um, the way it was introduced to me <laughs> was it will knock the frosting off of you. And okay. I didn't know exactly what to make of that, but it really um, was the first thing that I ever did that helped to shift my mindset to a whole range of new growth possibilities. And that was the beginning of my personal growth journey. Today, um, Earhart Seminars Training goes under the name of Landmark Education. And I okay. think they're all over the world. Well, that sounds, that sounds interesting. How did you sort of find out about that course? Oh boy. When I was going through my normal, you know, childhood and teenage confusion and um, difficulties. Um, my mother consulted with different people and she was connected to a psychologist who told her about it and <laughs> she told me about it. And so, in fact, at the time that I was going to do it, it was before I was 18. And in order for you to do it, one of your parents had to have done it already if you were under 18. So my mother actually did it first mm -hmm. before me so that I can wow. do it before my 18th birthday. Wow, that's, a, that's an amazing sort of connection between you and your mother as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
we, we have a pretty tight connection my whole life. That's amazing. That's amazing to hear. So we're talking today about substance abuse and sort of the impact that it has on both the individual and family as involved as well. Um, to start off with, how do you define substance abuse in sort of a general sense? Okay. There's so many different ways to broach that subject. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to wing it and see where we get. <laughs> um, Sounds good. I mean, substance abuse could entail numerous different substances from alcohol to recreational drugs to marijuana. These days, there are so many mind-altering substances that weren't even around back when I was younger. So um, I mentioned to you earlier that it, it, we could spend the whole time of this podcast if we want to list all the potential substances, but mm -hmm. I think it's not relevant. I think people know what that means for them. And um, there might be different things available in different parts of the world. And since you're in Australia and I'm in the United States and there's no telling what countries people are going to be living in that get a hold of this podcast, um, yeah. it, it's not really relevant what the substance is. What's relevant is your intention in using it. And if your intention in using it is to change the way you feel as a coping mechanism, I think the bottom line is the way I usually define it for people is it's a maladaptive um, coping skill. And by maladaptive, I mean it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. And so usually people will get into substance abuse because they don't want to feel the uncomfortable feelings that they're experiencing at that time in their life and they don't have any other knowledge of how to feel better or how to deal with the feelings that they're experiencing that are causing pain, suffering, discomfort. And so it's a, it's a way to numb those uncomfortable feelings or emotions, experiences. Mm -hmm. So how would you get from sort of the everyday use, because especially when it comes to alcohol as well with that kind of substances, how would you get from sort of the use to the abuse of it, from like the sort of day-to-day -day drinker to someone who sort of uses it a bit too much? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in my understanding, there are some familial genes that get passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. So some people have a predisposition genetically to addiction, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or any other substance. And so oftentimes when I hear people share their stories of how they got into their alcohol or drug addiction, it's usually they started doing it socially and they 
liked the way it made them feel. Now, somebody that doesn't have the predisposition for addiction is the kind of person that could have a couple of drinks and stop, or even if they get drunk occasionally, they don't necessarily have that addictive need to do it all the time or to get drunk. The people that have that predisposition, whether it's genetically, whether it's personality-based, there's various um, answers to that. Um, Basically, like I was saying earlier, if you see that it numbs out the uncomfortable, painful feelings and emotions that you're experiencing at that point in your life that you're not knowing any other way to deal with. It helps you to forget. It helps you to feel better, even if it's temporary. And then it becomes like any other habit, habitual. And some people can stop and some people can't. And those are the people that become hardcore addicts or alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that it's so significant to talk about substance abuse in sort of this day and age? I think anytime somebody is using substances to change the way they're feeling as a what I call a negative coping skill, um, they need to learn that there are other options that there are better ways to deal with the unpleasant things that they were using drugs and alcohol to cover up. For the real hardcore addict, it's a little bit more involved than just teaching you some new coping skills and now you can just stop using the drugs and alcohol. But when you have the addictive brain, that's like a whole The reason why drugs and alcohol is in the um, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual that psychiatrists write up, is because it is a medical condition. And so it's no longer just a bad habit. It is a medical predisposition, just like if you were a diabetic. And for people that have the addictive mindset, it's very tricky. You need some rigorous support as well as tools to uncover what is underlying. And I usually like to tell people that drugs and alcohol is not your problem. The pain and suffering that you're using the drugs and alcohol to cover up is Mm -hmm. the underlying problem. So if you deal with the underlying problem in treatment, in outside therapy, and in 12-step support groups, and there's many other different types of support groups in addition to 12-step support groups, um, the success rate is high for those that are committed and really um, dedicated to getting sober. Mm-hmm. And do you think that there's a sort of um, 
difference in terms of gender when it comes to the use and misuse of it? Not necessarily. Um, it seems to be more of a male versus female population wise, but <laughs> I, I don't necessarily know if, if I could say that it's, I don't even know what the statistics are offhand. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, women um, are drug addicts and alcoholics, just like men. And I I think that um, it might be more of a male problem just because women usually are, it's more socially acceptable for them to talk about their feelings and their issues and their problems, whereas society usually tells men the only emotion that's socially acceptable is anger. So for Mm -hmm. them to be vulnerable and talk about their fears, their sadness, their hurts, that has not been very easy for a lot of men to do. And so numbing with drugs and alcohol probably for that reason has been more of an issue. Okay. And when it comes to sort of the behavior sort of ramifications of the use, how does it sort of affect um, the individual as well as the family members that are involved? Wow. There's so many possible responses to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be detrimental to families, friendships, work relationships, because um, for the hardcore addict or alcoholic, it interferes mostly with your day-to-day lifestyle. Um, there are people that are functional addicts and alcoholics. Um, I don't know how they're able to do it and others aren't. Maybe people have a higher tolerance than others or some people are better at hiding things or they're better at controlling when they're using it. And um, But for the most part, the people that I've encountered over the years yeah, so um, what are some of the effects that sort of ramifications that sort of come up when it comes to the individual when they um, when they overuse the substance? Yeah. So for some, it could be death, and then mm-hmm. families have to deal with the loss of a loved one. Friends have to deal with the loss of a loved one. So mm-hmm. that's the ultimate sacrifice. Um, Then there's the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the um, disappearance for long periods of time, the the inability to be reliable and count-honorable to the people in your life. People lose Mm -hmm. jobs, people lose their houses, people lose their support system. And so some people have what we call hitting bottom. So some people have a higher bottom, some people have a lower bottom. And 
some people, when they get to a certain level of consequences, that might be a wake-up call for them to get help and stop the cycle of use. But for other people, they might try and stop, but the addictive voice in their brain is so strong that they can't counteract it if they haven't gotten you know, the, either the high level of motivation or the proper level of treatment. Mm-hmm. So when you see like the way that they portray substance use and substance abuse in films and shows, and they really show it as a huge sort of breakaway between, like you talked about the stealing and the lying and um, sort of individuals sort of getting kicked out of home because they're too much of a uh, threat to other family members involved. How do you think that sort of, does that definitely affect the real reality of how it's portrayed? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's even worse than that because for those that get arrested for getting caught with possession of high level of substances or for dealing or selling drugs, um, DUIs, lawyers fees. Um, I always tell people it's much cheaper to take a taxi or an Uber than to pay a lawyer. So if you know you're going to be going out and hitting it hard, Mm -hmm. do not drive. I mean, that's an easy fix that most people don't think of when they're using. And a lot of times people don't always get kicked out of their homes, but a lot do. Um, Some just, they lose their jobs because they're not going to work or their work quality is so bad that they get fired or they aren't paying their bills and then they get evicted. So there's so many levels of consequences. Mm. And how would you sort of go about bringing sort of the awareness to families that are involved that this is something that they aren't able to to handle um, all alone, that they sort of still need support? Yes. So the best thing that I can say is that where most families struggle is that if you're not an addict or an alcoholic, you're completely clueless. And because you love the person that's the addict or alcoholic, a lot of friends and family members fall into the trap of enabling them. And that means when they come pleading, just I need X amount of money to pay my rent or to get food. Oftentimes, you don't know if they're really going to use it for what they say they're going to use it for or they go out and get high. Um, the term tough love is very well known these days. It's not easy to have tough love because we can easily be manipulated and sucked into feeling badly for the person that we love and care about. So the best thing that I can say for if you have a loved one or a family member that's an addict or an alcoholic, go to Al-Anon meetings. Al-Anon meetings means 
it, Al-Anon is for the friend or family member of an addict or an alcoholic. It's mm-hmm. usually for an alcoholic, but it doesn't matter. It's all the same. You need to learn what's going on in you so that you can better support them. And the program is going to teach you how to deal in your relationships with an addict or an alcoholic. And I have some clients that are in relationships with an addict or an alcoholic and they feel like, well, I'll do therapy, but I don't want to go to Al-Anon because that's their problem. It's not my problem. And I try to get them to see that as long as you're in a relationship with somebody that has these addictions, it is going to be your problem. And you need to educate yourself in that area of your life, as well as working on your own personal growth issues. Mm -hmm. And so going on to some of the misconceptions that come along with substance abuse, what are some of the common misconceptions that you can think of? That when somebody wants to get clean or sober from drugs or alcohol, that if they relapse, they're a failure. That is probably one of the biggest misconceptions because although relapse does not have to be a part of someone's story in getting sober or clean, sober more relates to alcohol, clean more relates to drugs. Unfortunately, I've known many people that have relapsed numerous times before something finally clicked in their brain and they were able to maintain sobriety for long periods of time and and now like have multiple years of clean time. So I never give up hope. Um, what I will do is if somebody that I know is in active relapse, I cannot personally associate with them. I'm not talking about a client, but I cannot personally associate with them unless I know that they're motivated to get clean. And when people come back to um, seriously um, want to get sober, I always welcome them with open arms. And I say that as as a recovering addict. I'm not saying that as the licensed professional counselor. I'm saying that as a recovering addict, I will love you and support you if you're wanting to get clean. I cannot be there while you're in active use, but when you are ready for support and help to get sober again, all I wanna know when people come back into recovery is what was your experience like? Mm -hmm. I need to hear (laughs) that it was not a good experience for them. And so far in the 20 years that I've been around people in in recovery, I've asked that question so many times. Mm -hmm. Not one person has said that I had a fabulous time relapse. It was worse 
than their original use. Because what happens is when people relapse is they pick up right where they left off. They don't start out like a fresh user again. They hit the road running and they hit it hard. And if they don't stop quickly, some people do, you know, are able to get back into recovery quickly and other people can be out there for years before they come back in and some people die. And that's the hard, cold fact of the disease. Mm. Do you ever get situations where like family members are saying, well, they can't they just stop? Can't they just not use it? Of course. Yeah, that's why they have to get educated. Because mm. if you don't educate yourself about the disease, the same way if you had a diabetic in your household, you would want to know how to support them with their diet, with their insulin use, with what whatever different parts of their daily life can affect their need for more insulin. You would want to know that. So if you're in the life of an addict or an alcoholic who's actively using, you need to educate yourself because it will impact you and the more ignorant you are, the more vulnerable you are to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. So like when it comes to people, like there's another sort of misconception that goes around is that people who use drugs can't change. And they're sort of just like, they're forever sort of in that field, even as like during their sobriety and while they're sober, there is sort of that misconception. How, like, how do you go about sort of dealing with that sort of set, especially in sort of um, a workplace environment or in a relationship? Well, as a mental health therapist, the word can't is not in my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. The word that is more important is what is your motivation? If you have a motivation to do something, you can pretty much set your mind to do that and be successful not necessarily overnight. You might have trials and tribulations. You might have failures along the way, but it's not a matter of how quickly you get successful. It's the fact that you continue getting up on the horse and riding until you're, you know, making strides. And in the 20 years that I've been in this realm, I, I've seen hundreds and thousands of people that have been chronic relapsers eventually become clean and sober for long periods of time. And I've known people that were clean and sober for long periods of time stop doing the things that were helping them to stay clean and sober for long periods of time, and then they've relapsed. So mm -hmm. the thing is, you need to stay vigilant for the rest of your life the same way you would never say to a diabetic, don't you get to a point where you don't need to take your insulin every day? No. Do you mm -hmm. ever say to somebody, are you going to eat today? No, of course you're going to eat today. You need that to survive. Well, if you're an addict or an alcoholic, you need to stay as diligent in your recovery program. There's maintenance. If you're working a 12-step program, there are maintenance steps of the 12 steps, 10, 11, and 12, that are 
things that you make a part of your daily recovery. And when you stop um, nurturing and it's like watering the plant, if you stop watering the plant, eventually it's going to wither and die. Well, if you stop nurturing your soul and doing the things that keep you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy, you're putting yourself at risk. There's a term for that. They call it a dry drunk. Okay. So like, how would you, I know there's a lot of, when it comes to job applications and signing for jobs, and you have to mention that, how would you sort of go about saying that, okay, I'm recovering in this and like, especially workplaces, they're sort of less likely to hire certain people because of that sort of situation that they've dealt with. And how do you sort of go about that sort of situation? Well, you actually don't have to disclose that. I don't know what the laws are in Australia, but in the United States, Mm -hmm. they have HIPAA laws, health insurance, um, portability. I forget what all the letters stand for, but basically, your medical records are confidential and you do not have to disclose your health issues on job applications. And um, unless you have a criminal background, you know, they could run, you know, background checks and see if you've been arrested for drugs, alcohol, or any criminal offenses. But if you don't have a criminal background or you've never been arrested or in jail, there's no way that they're going to know if you're currently or in the past an addict or an alcoholic unless you choose to disclose that. And that's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're in recovery, you don't need to tell people the same way you don't need to tell your boss you're a diabetic or you're, you have a heart condition um, mm-hmm. unless it's going to require certain accommodations at your job for your, you know, disability. But if it doesn't impact your day-to-day work, you do not have to disclose that. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what the laws are here. I think it's definitely something that um, probably it's a personal choice of saying, of telling the employer of that situation. So yes, I think um, I'm not quite sure what the rules are here. but I think I'm guessing it's this similar to what the U.S. does and sort of in terms of what we do. Now, going into sort of the challenges in dealing with substance abuse, a study found that dealing with substance abuse as a family is a very challenging situation. So what do you think about a family's approach to an addiction treatment? Well, Oftentimes, if somebody goes into a treatment center, whether it's a residential treatment center or an outpatient treatment center, oftentimes towards the end of the program and throughout the program, depending on how long one is in the program, um, they usually bring the family in for both family therapy sessions, for family education sessions, so that you're more knowledgeable about helping your loved one than you were before. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said earlier, 
I think that it's important for everybody to do their individual growth work. So whether you do that in a 12-step program and outside help with therapy, um, I highly recommend that. I think in this day and age, life is stressful generally on a daily basis, even if you're not dealing with major issues like drugs and alcohol. Everybody has had situations from childhood that's caused them shame and guilt, that's caused them um, levels of maybe self-esteem issues, self-worth issues. And I think that we could never learn how to deal with ourselves from the inside out. It's a never ending growth process. And most therapists have therapists, so we practice what we preach. And so I recommend people to educate themselves and do their own personal growth work. And if you're dealing with an addict or an alcoholic, doing something like Al-Anon is a great support system for yourself as well as for your relationships with the addict or the alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the most reasonable skills that someone has to sort of understand in order to deal with substance abuse? Okay. First, they have to learn that shame is probably one of the most detrimental um, emotions that anybody can hold on to. And basically what shame says is who I am at my core is not good. Maybe even worse than not good. Maybe I'm a horrible human being. I can never be loved. And anybody that shames another human being, that is probably one of the most violent things that we can do to another person is say things or do things that knowingly cause them shame. However, if you, if it happens unknowingly, then if you become aware that what you said or did cause them shame, please clean that up with them. But if you're doing it deliberately, consciously, knowingly, it's very detrimental. So learning to work through our shame and guilt, because guilt says what I did was bad, shame says who I am is bad. So shame is much more difficult to work through than guilt. It's very important. That's why the work that Brene Brown does with shame and vulnerability, super important. That is one of the most prevalent things that I work on with my private clients is for them to learn that whatever shame they're holding on to is they, they, they really need to be willing to work through that. And I will support them in whatever way I can to work through that. First of all, talking about it, because most times there's so much embarrassment around shame and being vulnerable for the things that we feel shame about that most people don't talk about it. So the more that you hold it in, the more it is killing you spiritually and emotionally 
and spiritual and emotional pain from shame can cause physical ailments. And that's usually what's underlying alcohol and drug addiction is hardcore shame. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there's so much of so many situations where people just aren't able to express themselves and sort of what leads them to the physical abuse? You're talking about the physical abuse with drugs and alcohol? Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah, if I'm abusing themselves with drugs and alcohol. Okay. It's hard to be vulnerable when you don't feel safe. And it's hard to be vulnerable when you don't love yourself or like yourself. So if you don't have a good support system that you feel safe to talk about those things that cause you shame and guilt, mm -hmm. um, then you're gonna hold that stuff. It's like those dirty little secrets that people keep to themselves. Because if you knew this about me, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't want to associate with me. You wouldn't even want to talk to me. So when people believe those things, they don't even know that there's a way out of that circle of um, self pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I tell people is that you need to feel safe around the people in your life in order to be vulnerable. And if you listen to Brene Brown talk about this, you know, it's really important to have a support system. And we can't ever get through life being alone and be happy. Mm -hmm. Why, like, they always say that also building a lifestyle and sort of building a routine is helpful. How has that sort of helped individuals gain a sort of sense of control over, over their use? I love this question because <laughs> when people first get into a treatment program or start getting sober, even if they don't go to a treatment program, the first thing, so if you do like 12 step recovery, it's really encouraged to get a sponsor that will help you work through the 12 steps and sort of be like your point person when you're new and you're ignorant about what to do. Um, I also always encourage people in addition to having a sponsor to have a large sober support network. And usually I recommend people that have over a year or more of continuous sobriety because people tend to hang around the people that came into recovery with them. And it's like the blind leading the blind. So you want to surround yourself with the people that have already been successful in this area so that you can get guidance when you're struggling. Um, simple stuff like getting into a routine, like you get up in the morning, make your bed, brush your teeth, you know, take a shower once a day, you know, keep your house somewhat organized. Um, it's a very simple spiritual thing to do to keep your 
living environment organized because when you're around chaos, what's going on between your ears? Lots of chaos. So there's very few things that we have control of in life, but one of them is taking good care of our ourself hygienically, as well as being honest, paying your bills, doing what you say you're going to do, showing up to work on time, being the best employee at your job, and being the best person in your relationships if you make plans with people that you can't keep. Let them know ahead of time. A lot of times when people are disorganized with drugs and alcohol, they're not going to call and cancel plans. They're just not going to show up and they might, maybe they don't even remember. They probably didn't put it on their calendar. And if they're getting high every day, then obviously that's not their priority. So when you are getting sober, you need to do the opposite of all the things that you did when you were in active addiction. And self-care and healthy routines are important for structure. So as a, in a sort of um, family member sense of it all, as a family with someone who is dealing with substance abuse, what are the best ways to sort of let them know that they have your support? Well, one thing that I always educate people I work with about is boundaries. And if you don't have clear, healthy boundaries with the people in your life, then you're setting yourself up for chaos, manipulation. Um, I think that when people love and respect themselves, having healthy boundaries is easier. And when people respect you, they will respect your boundaries. Now, sometimes you have people in your life that like to challenge your boundaries. You might need to remind them of the boundaries that you've told them about once, twice. But after two or three times of somebody not respecting your boundaries, there's got to be some type of logical consequence. Like maybe I'm not going to make plans with you as much as I used to, or maybe not at all. If I can't trust you to um, show up on time or if you don't respect me, how can we have a relationship? How can I share my innermost thoughts with you if I don't feel safe around you? Mm -hmm. How do you have that conversation between the person, the individual and the family member that sort of lets them know that, okay, there are stuff that we need to work through in order to, for me to, for you to trust me. And especially when it comes to that individual who is having trouble with the family member, how do you have that conversation between the two? Are you talking about the addict or alcoholic having trouble with the family member or the other yes. way around? Okay. The addict, the addict, yeah. Okay. So one thing that most addicts or alcoholics fear most is messing up. I mean, mm -hmm. I never tell people they have to be perfect. I tell people progress, not perfection. 
So if you're expecting somebody to be 100% perfect all the time, that's an unrealistic expectation, even for myself. So we're human and humans are flawed. So we need to be, you know, somewhat realistic. And, but, but you know when people mess up and when people do things thoughtlessly, um, irresponsibly, um, maybe even maliciously. You need to let people know that that's not acceptable or they're going to continue to do that if you don't call them out on it. Um, lots of times for friends and family members of an addict or alcoholic, it takes a while for them to know that they can trust you again because you've lied to them, you've been irresponsible to them for long periods of time. There are probably lots of things that you've done that you need to make amends to. However, if you're working a 12-step program, making amends is not until step nine of 12. So mm -hmm. a lot of times people get sober or and they want to make amends to people before they're ready or prepared to really do that in the way that is best. And so any sponsor will tell somebody that they're sponsoring new in, in, in recovery. The steps are in order number for a reason. Don't make amends until you get to step nine. But what you can be doing in the meantime is living your life with integrity. You know, doing, there, there's a thing called living amends. Sometimes you can't make amends to certain people because either they're dead or you don't know where they are anymore. They're not in your life and you don't know where they are or they're dead. So making living amends is basically saying, I am going to be my best self. I am going to do the next right thing. And when I mess up, I'll clean it up. That is all that you can ask of somebody. Mm -hmm. I love, I love that. Um, it's such a, it's such a process where like, if, even if you mess up, there's still that way of getting through it. There's still that it's a process. And I think that's what a lot of people sort of Mis mis um, misconstrued it as well. They're sort of just thinking that, okay, if I mess up, I failed at this, I cannot do this all the way. And it's amazing. Like I looked into that 12 step process and I think it's very similar to what they do um, here in Australia as well. And it's so interesting that if you go back a couple of steps, you can easily just get back up to where you were and sort of have that ability to sort of that structure. And even no matter if you're like a, a substance user or not, you're still able to follow that process in any situation. And mm -hmm. I love just how easy they make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we make it harder than it has to be, but it is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, And when I say, when I say we make it hard, I mean the addict or the alcoholic. Yes, <laughs> not the exactly. No, the program is there. Like you said, the program is there for a reason and it's in certain steps for a reason. So many people have been able to follow through with it. So it's amazing to see how helpful that process is and how supportive it is. Even if you don't have any individual support, you have that step process and you have that community there.
Mm-hmm. So going into the practice and habit part of our show, um, what is a practice that you do yourself in order to help yourself go through the sobriety part? That's a very loaded question. <laughs> Can you like hone that in a little bit more? Yeah, of course. So with all the different situations, with all the different um, practices that you go through, what's one habit that you sort of go through on a day-to-day basis that sort of helps you along on the journey? Okay. Similar to what I said a little while ago, when I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth, I make my bed, I get dressed, even if it's casual clothing, because lots of times I'm working from home. But it helps me to get out of whatever I was sleeping in to feel fresh and get myself ready for the day, even including having a cup of coffee and some healthy food for breakfast. And um, usually my morning routine is yogurt with like strawberries and blueberries or some type of fruit. And um, I, I take supplements in the morning and I like to keep healthy and go to the gym a few times a week. And I'll usually connect with some of the people in my life that I feel close with just to touch base in the morning. Um, So I I feel connected to the outside world. And um, I, I find that doing that keeps me sane because it's so easy when the brain gets cluttered and you get out of your healthy habits to feel discombobulated. And um, it's so easy just to do those few things to get the day started. Some people like to meditate. Some people like to pray. Um, I sort of do that while I'm doing the stuff that I'm doing mindfully. And I I believe that anything that's done mindfully, like brushing your teeth, um, you can make that a meditation practice. So you can sort of kill two birds with one stone. That's, That's amazing. I love that the routine of it all. And what are three good things that you found about this daily practice? Well, I think that healthy routines um, keep you centered, keep me centered, and it, it keeps my mind focused. And if I get out of the habit of doing these important self-care things that are so simple and basic, you'd be surprised how many people that don't do these things feel scattered throughout the day. And so at any time that you're feeling scattered throughout the day, I always tell people stop and take like three to five slow deep breaths. And that helps to calm my mind and body. 
and to de-stress a little bit and to give my mind a little bit more clarity. And I recommend doing that throughout the day as long as you need to, as often as you need to. I, I teach the clients that I work with a whole bunch of mood boosters and stress reducers that they could utilize throughout the day. Even just simple stuff like drinking water. When you're not, when you get dehydrated, it has an effect on your mood. And when your mood is low, you're going to start being less productive in anything you're doing that day. Just going outside for fresh air for five or 10 minutes, taking a walk, listening to some upbeat music, stuff like that. Very simple, but very basic and important. I, I always struggle to understand a lot of people who don't have that routine and don't have a sense of, um, they'll just go whatever feels like, whatever they feel like doing. And for me, it's like, you know, it's right how scattered you are throughout the day and you don't realize like there are a lot of people, a lot of my friends, they have, they're in pajamas literally all day because they're working from home. So they're in like pajamas all the, throughout the whole time. And I'm sitting here, like I have to know that I have to change out of it. I know that I have to do all those things. And you're, it's amazing how much it actually helps. And mm -hmm. you don't even realize it. Just putting on fresh underwear, sweatpants, a sweatshirt, something that's fresh that I didn't spend the last eight hours sleeping in. And so it's like putting deodorant on and washing my face and brushing my teeth. It's like, I can't even imagine not doing that sometime no. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same. So are there any challenges that you face when you're going through this practice? Well, like any other living, breathing human being, we can easily get in our heads about stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if I notice that my abdominal area is feeling tense is usually when I know something is off with my inner peace and serenity. So what I haven't mentioned yet is the most valuable thing in my life is my inner peace and serenity. And when that is out of whack, I am out of whack. And so I, have certain things that tell me when it's out of whack, when I feel tense in my, in my gut, in my abdominal area. So that's usually a sign that I need to look at certain things. And I probably need to talk to somebody that I can be open and honest with just to mm -hmm. get some clarity on my thoughts. And so that could be my personal therapist. It could be, I have a sponsor that I've been working with for the 20 years I've been in sobriety. We're good friends. And I have friends in recovery. I sponsor people. Um, as a therapist, I work with people that are dealing with all kinds of day-to-day -day stressors. And there's nothing that I usually can't relate to that I haven't experienced at some point along my journey. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I tell people there's very few things that are going to shock me. Of course, there's always things that can shock me. But mm-hmm. um, the thing that moves me to tears in, in a positive way is I am blown away when people can be open, honest, and vulnerable around me. To me, that is the most inspiring thing that somebody feels safe enough to tell me stuff that maybe they don't tell anybody else. That is such an honor and a privilege and a gift. Yeah, no, that's, it really is um, to know that you're trusted with something and that something that they're not usually telling anyone. I, I can definitely understand that. Um, yeah, I definitely think that my, like the challenges that happen in going through that day-to-day routine as well is the fear that if I don't do it, I'm failing at something. Like if I haven't done, if I haven't made the bed, like nothing, none of the day really works out. And that's such a huge challenge, I think, especially now that I'm working from home most days, I'm so struggling with the idea that okay, I can see my bed is not made. I'm halfway through the day. I need to go and make it anyway. And nothing sits right unless it's done. It literally takes two minutes. Exactly. literally takes two minutes. It's not like a 30-minute a project. It's so no, simple. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so strange how much it's affected me. I think I only started doing the routine for a fa- past like few months or so. Um, Usually the only reason why I can't make the bed is because I've got six cats at home and four of them love sleep on my bed. Yeah. So it is impossible to make it with them on it. Yeah. I have two dogs, so I have to like get them off the bed and sometimes get them out of the room and shut the door. And when the bed's made, then they can come back in. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If I if I didn't have the, the bitey cat with me, I probably would be able to do it a lot more frequently, but hopefully, um, hopefully I'll still be able to keep the routine down even with her disturbances. <laughs> <laughs> so, but pet, pets are another pet. Let me just say, since we're just talking about our pets, yes, pets are an incredible mood booster. I, one of the things I tell people is if you have a pet, play with your pet. If you're feeling down or your mood is low, Play with your pet. Unconditional love, 24-7. That's yes. it. No, I can definitely agree with that. Um, I'll definitely recommend pets as well. I don't think, I don't remember my life before I had them, uh, we, before we found them on our, on our doorstep a few years ago. So mm-hmm. I am so glad that we were able to have them. And I think especially when it came through the lockdowns that happened a couple, like a year ago or two, Without pets, I think life would not be the same, for sure. Tell me about it, yeah. (laughs) So how do you think this practice of your routine has impacted you as your perception in life, as well as your your family life? Well, I, I look at my daily routine as the same, I call it a spiritual practice. Because spiritual practice does not have to be like going to the top of a mountain and meditating for five years. 
doing those simple basic things is very spiritual and very simple. And, you know, I did a lot of um, exploration into Buddhist practice, not from a religious standpoint, but just from more of a philosophical and spiritual standpoint. And you cannot live in a cluttered environment and have a clear mind and have inner peace and serenity. It makes it a lot more challenging, put it that way. Mm-hmm. So doing, the, yeah. doing these simple things puts you ahead of the, the curve and makes it a whole lot less struggle and effort to have inner peace and serenity in your daily life by doing these simple, healthy practices. It's, it still amazes me how easy, how much it does impact your life and sort of just the understanding of it. And, and we can make it simple or hard for ourselves. And if you're struggling with this, I say, just do it because thinking about it is not going to accomplish anything. I judge people more on their actions than their words. You can promise me the world, but if your actions are not consistent with anything you tell me, then your word is not credible to me. Yes, and I think that's how a lot of people should actually live live their lives because it makes life so much more simpler when it's seen that way. Mm-hmm. So, so going into sort of the questions from audiences that were sent to us, um, starting off with the first one, what are the negative impacts of substance, substance abuse that are not dealt with properly within a family? That would probably go back to the lack of education in the area. If mm-hmm. you don't really know much about addiction and substance abuse, then you're going to treat it like anything that you do ignorantly and you're going to do it based on emotions and feelings versus knowledge and facts and when you're dealing with something as chaotic as addiction you need to really know the facts of how to deal with it and how to best support your loved one. And sometimes the best way you can support someone is tough love. And that tough love is you can't live in my house if you're doing those behaviors. I can't give you money if I know that there's a possibility you're gonna spend it on substances that are not good for you. And until I can trust you and hold you accountable to your word, um, I I can't be around you. And that Mm -hmm. is not easy to say or do. And many people fold. Many people say these things and then they cave because they're softies. And I can't blame them for wanting to help the loved one. However, oftentimes, when you're enabling somebody, you're doing more harm than good. 
So it's a fine line. You don't always know, am I doing the right thing? Is, is kicking them out of the house going to make it worse? You can't blame yourself for the addict's behavior because you are powerless over other people's actions. And I've had to learn that I am powerless over other people, places, and things. The only thing I really have any control over are my choices and my actions. And maybe not always. <laughs> because, you know, I could make choices that may not really be available to me. So there's a lot that we don't have control over. And we struggle to control things that we don't have control over. And it causes a lot of heartache. Mm -hmm. It's important to do your own personal growth work when you're dealing with this stuff, because you can't do this blindly and ignorantly. It's, it's amazing how much it affects um, the family members as well, and how that sort of, it affects their mental health in a sense as well, I'm assuming. Of course, it's going to cause stress, it's going to cause chaos in the normal family functioning and mm -hmm. if if it's if it's a a husband a wife a spouse a partner a boyfriend girlfriend best friend roommate it's definitely going to impact the life that that you used to live it's like a whole new normal that's been turned upside down and totally chaotic and so even for people that live alone, when they're addicts and alcoholics, they still have friends and family that they maybe lose contact with. Because when you're using, you're not going to call your parents once a week like you may be used to. And maybe you're not going to show up to work five days a week like you're supposed to. So there's a lot of behaviors that cause a lot of chaos and that's when people lose their jobs, their house, their friends, their family, their support system. Mm -hmm. And so another one is how can we push or encourage the individual to seek therapy and support them as a family member if they're in denial or refuse to seek help? You cannot make somebody do something they don't want to do. So mm -hmm. there's a a type of um, therapeutic orientation that's most effective to work with people with addiction called motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. And I've studied this for many years because it's not as easy as it seems on the surface level to apply with people in real life addiction situations. but. I've learned from trial and error, practicing motivational interviewing myself, is that you cannot force somebody to do anything. It's like trying to get somebody to diet when they need to lose weight because they're going to die if they don't. Or any bad habit that you're trying to support somebody in doing is like if they're not motivated to do it, you can't make them do it. You're, you're not going to be with them 24-7. And you can't watch anybody. So you can shame them and guilt them, but that doesn't help. That just drives them further down the rabbit hole. 
So oftentimes you have to learn to roll with the resistance and you have to just have really firm boundaries. It's like, fine, you don't want to get sober. That's your choice. I can't make you. However, you can't live in this house. I can't spend quality time with you like we used to because I can't watch you killing yourself or abusing yourself. (laughs) And so when you're ready to respect yourself the way I respect you, I'll be here for you. But until then, I cannot be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And that's being honest. I mean, why would you make yourself, I mean, it's going to be hard to have that conversation regardless. But when the time comes, what else can you do? I can't drag you to the treatment center because people leave treatment centers all the time before they're ready to leave. You can't make mm-hmm. somebody stay in a treatment center, even if they're court mandated. Some people would rather go to jail than be in a treatment center because that's how much resistance they have to the addiction and getting clean and sober. You can't attack this from a rational place. Addiction is not rational. Mm. People are not thinking clearly. It's a very tricky thing, the the attic brain. Yeah, it's it sounds like the boundaries is a big plays a big part in the connection, the relationship between the person who is abused and the um, the family member. Mm-hmm. So, and, and for people that don't know how to have healthy boundaries, that's why they have to do their own personal growth work. Okay. It's, it's, there's a huge connection when it comes to yourself and why you're not able to set boundaries. And I think understanding, your, I guess, I'm guessing understanding yourself will help a lot more in setting those boundaries. Yes, definitely. Okay. So the last question is, at what point is it beyond our help to aid that family member dealing with substance abuse? And would it be considered selfish leaving them for the sake of your own well-being? Absolutely not. Actually, it's, it's totally the opposite. If you are able to do the tough love thing, that is not selfish. That is the only, that's usually a last resort. It's not the first resort. It's when you've been lied to and and manipulated and used and abused over and over and over again that you finally say, I'm done. People don't usually do that first off. And different people have different levels of tolerance for what they'll put up with for longer periods of time and others shorter periods of time. But the bottom line is you are probably doing the best thing for them by finally not enabling them any longer. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of being selfish and how was that sort of taken on in a whole society understanding of what selfish is as a family? Because usually families are there till the end, but 
in this day and age, a lot of it has sort of changed in what it means to take care of your own self. And they compare it to like the people on the plane where you put your own face mask on first before someone else. And is that sort of take a role in this situation as well? Yes, I use that analogy often. Um, <laughs> if, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not really gonna be available to help other people very long. And if you don't have um, a good self-care practice, if you don't know what you're doing in the area of helping somebody that's got an addiction problem, then you are like skydiving without a parachute. Yep. You, you need to get professional people involved even if the addict isn't ready to get in recovery, you need to do your own personal work because eventually they'll come around, hopefully. But even if they don't or they end up dead, you're going to have to do the work eventually. And the sooner, the better, so that you're not waiting until you're a basket case before you're seeking outside help. Okay. It, so, it sounds like a huge, it sounds a lot of a case of communication between everyone sort of partaking in the family and everyone involved as well. Like that communication must be something that's really hard to sort of um, set. And especially with people who don't, who sort of are in denial how do you open that communication boundary as well? With with an addict or an alcoholic that you're close to? Yes. The best thing that I can say to somebody is when you're done, we call it doing research sometimes. That's sort of like a joke in a way. <laughs> but, you know, like when you're, sick and tired of living the life that you're living, let me know and I'll be here for you. But until then, I cannot be a part of this insanity because that's mm -hmm. what it is, insanity. And I always tell people I'm here for you when you're ready, but until you're ready, I can't be here for you. Okay. So they know that when they're ready, they have somebody they can reach out to. And these days, most people know that there's 12-step meetings if you're not living in a rural, deserted island. There's, you know, between AA and A, there's so many different anonymous programs for diff different substances. There's Crystal Meth Anonymous. Heroin Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Emotions Anonymous, you name it, there's a 12-step program out there for it. Mm -hmm. And so, and then there's, there's therapy. And these days, you don't have to be near a therapist. I'm licensed in the state of Georgia in the United States. I used to be able to only work with people that lived in close proximity. But now with virtual options, I could work with anybody anywhere in the state. And 
it would be great if they would have more open access so that because there is a mental health crisis and shortage of professionals and there are certain states that don't have enough people i can get licensed in other states but i'm only one person i can only see so many people in a day in a week in a month and um and then again i have to take care of myself so that i don't you know become a basket case and then i'm no good to anybody so Mm -hmm. you have to know what your limits are yeah that's 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 a really good way of putting it. It's like a really good point. Um, so we've got the last section, which is called an open mic, and you're able to talk about anything that you are passionate about or anything that you want to share with the audience. So during the last few minutes of the show, we love to give you the floor and allow you to, that space to sort of talk directly with the audience. So yes, I would love to hand it straight off to you and you get to share anything you want. Okay, so I'm going to talk about self-harm and suicidal thoughts. When I was in my master's program and I took a class in crisis intervention, the thing that hit me the most is that suicide is... um, permanent solution to a temporary problem. And so if you're really going through a tough time, whether it's drugs, alcohol, shame, guilt, grief, loss, if you have some severe kind of mental health diagnosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, anything that causes psychosis, um, there are places where you can go for help. So in the United States, there used to be an an 800 number that you can call for the national crisis line. Now it is very simple. It's three numbers, 988. If you are needing to talk to a professional, if you're having thoughts of harming yourself or wanting to end your life, you do not have to suffer in silence. You can just call 988 and talk to a licensed professional 24 hours, seven days a week. Hopefully in other countries, they have something similar. I don't know what that is for the country that you might live in if it's outside the US. You can call 911 and find out what the local crisis hotline number is in your area. I tell people, plug it into your cell phone keep it on a piece of paper in your wallet. If it's a three digit number, like 988, memorize it. They just did that within the last year, the 988, instead of having to know like a whole 800, 10 digit number. When somebody is in crisis, we need to make it as easy and simple as possible. But just know that you don't have to suffer in silence alone. That when you think that there is no hope that is the lie that we tell ourselves there's always hope it's just like today it seems like an endless no options no solutions there's always a solution you just might not be thinking of it clearly for yourself but 
reaching out to professionals, they can help you find solutions. And just remember that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And that has always stuck in my heart, knowing that nothing lasts forever, feelings come and go. And you've been through tough times before and somehow you've worked through it. If you're listening to me talking to you, Dina, today, you are still alive. There's always hope as long as you're breathing. And it seems like it's hopeless at times when you're in the deepest, darkest despair. And that might just be because you have a lot of shame or guilt about things that you don't like or love about yourself. And just know that with the proper help, that can turn around if you are motivated to do the inside work. That is, that is an amazing um, use of the time and an amazing conversation that, again, needs to be talked about in all different countries in so many different ways. And um, so thank you for bringing that awareness to the show today. Um, there's definitely going to be a link to resources down in the description below of different resources that you can go to. Um, I'm not sure how to do it internationally, but uh, there'll be different places that you can go to. And again, similar to you, I think it's really helpful to know that number, um, to know the number for any crisis hotline, any available. I love the idea of putting it in your wallet as well and keeping that number with you mm-hmm. um, for any for any situation, even if it's not you or anyone it could be anyone around you on a day-to-day basis that yeah you can share yeah, with so, people. exactly and it's an important number to know it's a really important um part of the society we're living in today that we all just need to be made aware of and so yeah thank you for using that time to be talking about that because it's it's a really it's a big emotional topic to my heart as well so yeah it's it's amazing to hear that the awareness is being brought to the show today. Thank you. I also do want to thank you for joining me and talking about uh, substance abuse and sharing your story and sharing your profession um, on the show today and just spending the Sunday, your Sunday afternoon just volunteering, voluntarily coming on and talking about this is pretty incredible to have. If it saves one person's life, it's well worth the time. And that's exactly what I I hope this show does. And I hope that's why I'm really glad that this topic is being brought. Something that we all face, something that we all see on a day-to-day basis is being brought on the show and talked about in a a depth that we can all understand and we can all somehow relate to. So yes, I'm really glad that is being brought onto the show as well. Thank you. Um, If there is a way that an audience member would like to get in contact with you, is there a place that they are able to? I will give you my email address. It's Stephen with a V, S-T-E-V-E-N, B as in boy, is my first initial of my last name, 
LPC for Licensed Professional Counselor at gmail.com. Stephen B. LPC at gmail.com. My personal okay. email. Okay, that's, that's amazing. I will add that link down below as well and add that email down in the description so it makes it easier for audiences to have it there with them. Um, so yeah, thank you again so much for spending the Sunday afternoon and evening now joining me on and talking about this. Um, yeah, so everyone, if you want to follow us on our social media, find, email Stephen, get to know us a bit more, get to know the show. Um, yeah, it's all down below in the description. Everything's going to be down there or on the side, depending on where you're listening. So yeah, thank you so much um, for listening, guys. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.